Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm Tez Podcast producer Joshua Morris. We're currently on Easter break and we'll be returning the week after next to catch you back up on the latest education news and analysis. In the meantime, though, we thought we'd bring you some of the other great education coverage at Tez. So, while our news team are taking a well-deserved break from their podcast duties this week, we have a special edition for you featuring a unique new webinar format. As I mentioned last week, as part of the new Tez Magazine Insight series, editor John Severs was joined by some top education experts to discuss the impact of COVID and the school's white paper. The panel featured Rebecca Boomer-Clark, CEO of the Academy's Enterprise Trust, Kathy Payne, CEO of the Reach2 Academies Trust, Becky Francis, CEO of the Education Endowment Foundation, and Caroline Wright, Director General of the British Education Suppliers Association. You can watch that webinar for free and also download a free report outlining the major education trends and stories from the past three months on our website at tes.com forward slash four dash schools forward slash education dash insights. This digital report provides an overview of the key challenges currently facing schools, leaders and teachers every day. It's essential reading if you want to stay up to date on everything going on in the sector, and you can get a head start on that now by listening to the following panel discussion with John Severs. The area we're going to focus on first is the COVID's impact on academic attainment. Kathy, let's come to you first. Um, what impact has COVID had on the primary age group? Where are the problems worse and how bad are those problems? Okay, so if we start with the older children first, that's the positive part of the story. Um, we're finding that the children in year five and year six are fared the best. I was in a school in Barnet a couple of weeks ago and was really impressed with the quality of the written work. It's been writing, I think, that has been the hardest to um, maintain in terms of the remote learning. but the catch-up that's gone on and the quality of the teaching that happened both online and now the schools are back. Um, I could see no difference in the quality of the written work from the year sixes from any time pre-COVID, which was, you know, clearly really, really reassuring. Unfortunately, the picture seems to deteriorate the younger the children. So we're finding with our year two children that you know, if we look at their journey through school, they haven't had a single undisrupted year since they began. And so um, the attainment in terms of their reading and their writing and their maths is quite far below what we've seen in previous years. Obviously, the younger the children, the harder it was to maintain that momentum with the remote and online learning. And then in the early years, um, what the early years practitioners and the early years leads are telling me and I saw for myself in a recent visit to one of our schools in Stafford um, in, in Staffordshire itself um, there's really great collaboration between the schools and the, the feeling there and right across the trust is that the children uh, in the early years are finding it very hard to self-regulate and as a ballpark really are now we're only a couple of weeks away from the summer term where they might perhaps have expected children to have been when they came into reception in September. So that personal, social, emotional ability to regulate their communication and language isn't where it would be at this stage of the year. But it's actually things like physical development because of course children in the lockdowns of that age, they were two or three at the time, weren't getting out to toddler groups, they weren't involved in nursery education. So all elements of those early learning goals have been impacted 
Of course, with these children, we've now got longer to plug the gaps and I'm seeing incredible practice uh, going on, you know, that over and above is doesn't come close to describe it. So, you know, we're optimistic, but the, the you know, the marks on these children are there. I guess when they go up to secondary, uh, Rebecca, is the, that would be your equivalent of your year se your present year sevens who've had the most disruption. So the year four to year seven in terms of having gone through the SATs, haven't had that SATs preparation that the children would normally have had. Does that impact how you assess those children coming in? What sort of gaps are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely year seven and year eight. And we're finding actually year eight more so than year seven. You get that kind of natural uplift of going to secondary school, which means that I think that there's a real sense that year seven have had a fresh start and a full run at it mm. in a way that year eight didn't. And obviously they both were impacted in terms of, in terms of SATs. Um, I think it's really interesting to actually go back to the centre assessed grades. So what we found, if you go back to 2021 centre assessed grades, is that in primary, you've seen a decline across um, our primary schools from the 2019 levels of performance. Um, and in secondary, you've seen an increase. Um, and I think that that's fascinating in terms of where are these children actually? And, and so we've, we've really worked hard to think about how can we assess in a way that's meaningful, that can be anchored. And so we've done, um, we've done standardized testing in English and maths through all year groups, um, uh, key stage two right the way through to key stage four. Uh, but actually the data set that we're placing the most emphasis on is, is reading age data because we just felt that felt real. Yeah. Um, and when we did the baseline, so we did all, year, all children from year two through to year 11 and we did that in September um, and f over 50% of our 33,000 children were below their chronological reading age. Um, and I just think that there's, it's a really interesting space that I think we need to understand much more about at a, at a national level. What's really encouraging though, is that in just a few short months, so in the period between September and February, we've improved um, quite significantly. So eight percentage points across the trust in that period of time. So we've gone from 44% being below their chronological reading age to 52%. Um, which sounds small, but actually in that period of time, they've gained sort of, a, 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 they've made progress four times that which would be expected. And so I'm really encouraged that if we focus on the right things and that we assess things which are meaningful and can be meaningfully compared, actually there is, you know, these young people, they've missed out on a lot, but they've also acquired new skills. Um, and so it's really important, I think, that we're positive about how, you know, what's, what needs to look different for them, but actually the new skills and potential that, that, that's, that's inherent within them too. You know, we found coming back that classrooms were, were really quite quiet. You know, it's just that ability to sort of sit and discuss and sort of work comfortably with your peers. And for some children, that getting used to just socially being back in school was really challenging. How do you measure that meaningfully? And so we've sort of been quite cautious about using assessment data, but where we have, we've wanted it to be grounded in something really tangible and practical, which is where reading reading came good for us. When you say 44% of children, what, what would you have, what would that have been in 2019, <coughs> 2018? Do you, do you have baseline data or, or, an, or a, an assumption of yeah. what that would have been? I mean, it's the first time that across AT that we've done extensive reading age tests. So we don't have a baseline. What I can tell you is sort of going into it intuitively, I, I thought that it would probably be 
I just above 50%. But that was just sort of a, an intuitive sense. Um, I, I know that colleagues within, within Trust were surprised by how low it was. Um, I think that this is something which has perhaps been exacerbated by, by COVID and its disruption, but I actually think it's something which we haven't shone su a sufficient spotlight on for many years. Um, and it really is that, you know, literacy literally unlocks the curriculum for every child. Um, and so were we surprised? I think it's shocking data at one level, but were we surprised? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we were surprised, no. Does that reflect the national picture, do you think, Becky, that you're seeing in the EEF data? Are we, the, these sort of peaks of, of, of impact in year two and this year seven and eight and where the reading is impacted, mm -hmm. does that reflect in your data? Yeah, I mean, we now have access to a, a raft of evidence, actually, and there are a lot of high quality studies working in this area, tracking the impact of the pandemic on learning loss uh, over the period and indeed learning recovery, as back to saying. Um, and I th it's important to say we'll be trying to collate that evidence over the summer to try to bring those findings together and make them meaningful because, because many of these studies are using um, different data points, looking at different year groups and so forth, have started at different points during the pandemic and so forth. There can be some sort of um, apparent inconsistencies in the findings and we'll, we'll, we'll try to make sense of those. Um, I think the key takeaways are that overall we see this learning loss as, as we would anticipate. We're also beginning to see recovery in different areas. Um, it does seem from the findings overall, John, as though um, primary has been affected worse and the early years as, as we were hearing too. Um, but also that that's where some of the most significant catch up seems to be happening as well. Um, obviously, we've got this latest evidence from Renaissance and EPI's um, very latest findings that actually reading seems to be a core area of challenge. Um, and we're also seeing, as we would predict, that catch up seems to be um, taking place overall, but for socially disadvantaged kids, not only did they lose the most during the pandemic, and that evidence is very clear across the different studies we're, we're collating, um, but also that their catch up seems to be slower. And of course, we could hypothesize a whole range of explanations for that, um, but it does show where we need to go hardest and fastest in terms of thinking about recovery support. Does that reflect Caroline, in your members, when they're talking about usage of their platforms, we know that just post lockdown, the use of commercial products became free and everyone reported a huge uptick. And then since then, a lot of them have come back to paid uh, subscription services. But do they see this in their data and the usage of their apps? And are they feeding that into their product development, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. And I think whilst obviously listening to so Cathy and Rebecca talk particularly about sort of what's happening in schools, um, the best place to talk about that. But actually, in terms of what uh, we carry out research of schools, um, we feed in what our members tell us. And it's been really interesting. So our companies, uh, 400 odd companies provided, I think it was 24 million pounds of digital resources free of charge into schools just in the first three months of lockdown alone. And many of them carried that on all the way through to schools, went back in the September. And we have, we did see 
throughout lockdown and moving back into schools a huge uptick in terms of the use of digital resources but really interestingly and I think it just reflects I think I'm a little bit more positive of, about the situation in the sense of of feeling really confident about what teachers are doing because actually what we're seeing um, in primary schools particularly is a decline in the use of digital resources and a move back in terms of purchasing to play equipment, hands-on sort of sensory equipment. And I think that very much reflects that the teachers know where the children are, um, have missed out on some of those really important social skills and adapting their own classrooms and, and schools uh, effectively. So I kind of I think having seen that data moving forward, I think that's a, a, a sign hopefully that the schools the schools are knowing what they need to do with their pupils um, but I think one of the other challenges particularly on as we move out of the the COVID period we saw a huge investment in infrastructure and digital devices the government's um, device scheme you know different views on how well that went but there was a big injection of devices into schools but we still have actually I think it's 43% of primaries and 20% of secondary schools um, worried and unhappy about the infrastructure capacity they have in the classrooms and there, I think there's 1.2 million obsolete devices even now in schools so the kind of devices that can't be used because they just you know don't work anymore and we're going to have to see to, to maintain the progress that's been made a continued investment in the the equipment uh, infrastructure in schools so that schools can carry on with some of the gains they've made. It's interesting both both Kathy and, and, and Rebecca have pointed out this social and emotional side and you have as well. It's not easy to track that is it Becky in terms of like we, we, we've got reading age tests, we've got numeracy tests, how do you test for you the question is how do you test for those social <coughs> emotional impacts and for Caroline, how do those products that aim to help that, how do they prove they work? It's, it's a difficult mm. problem. So, I mean, to you first. Uh... Well, there are outcome measures for social and emotional learning, um, but you're absolutely right. Within the sort of context of the pandemic, there's been very little tracking of those measures, including mental health as well. And we know anecdotally, I'm sure um, colleagues around the room will, will agree that you know, this has been um, a core challenge that teachers are reporting on. Um, and parents are reporting on as well, of course. Um, but in terms of uh, the sort of numeric evidence for that, we have very little. Do you try and track that at a school level? Is it, you know, what sort of tools do you have other than teacher expertise, which really shouldn't be talked down mm -hmm. because teachers are amazing at spotting when a child is, is in trouble or a child is struggling. But do you have any metric for this? Well, we, I, mean, I think it's about the aggregation of different sources of evidence that sort of gives you the sort of richest insight um, and and I'm quite skeptical I think it's quite dangerous to actually go down the route of putting too significant a reliance upon one one source of data so I mean there are there there are platforms like AS steer which is used in some of our schools which which looks at uh, at um, anticipating um, challenges ahead for individual young people from responses to sort of survey questions. Um, but that in isolation, you know, nothing I think can, 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 can take the place of actually the relationship. And one of the things that we've talked about um, very, you know, quite extensively is actually resetting that culture, making sure that, that it's a positive, safe, affirming culture in all of our schools, making sure that every child is known 
that we understand the context. You know, the, the pandemic was very uneven in its distribution of impact and, and, and young people and families that were hardest hit. You know, some of that's visible to us. I suspect that much of that, um, it, well, it is invisible to us in, to, to a degree, and, and it's not over yet as we sort of see the, you know, the, the challenging sort of um, fiscal context that we're sort of operating in. And so I think I'm mindful of saying, yes, it's really important that we use data, but actually what's more important, I think, is that every child feels known um, and that we understand them as individuals. Um, and I think that so often, that sadly, the most reliable data is that which is retrospective and you put mm. together the patterns which then sort of say, well, the, actually, this point of crisis, you know, could it have been anticipated? And then I think you get into really difficult territory because this is hard and complex work. And I think to sort of oversimplify it, to sort of say that necessarily we are in a place that we can, we can have a stronger sort of predictive capability. I, I've got some, you know, I've got reservations about how far we want to go down that, that track. Is it more complex at primary, Kathy, in the sense that the children might not have the, uh, especially with the reading problems and the language problems that you're seeing coming through as a result of COVID, mm. they can't articulate those mm. problems as mm. easy as they may have done. I know it's always a struggle for a yeah. five-year-old to articulate <clears throat> their feeling, but are you mm. finding that area tougher? It is tougher. It is tougher for teachers and support staff. And I think, you know, we all know that when children behave in a way that isn't acceptable, it's it's trying to tell us something. And so the deterioration in, in what we're seeing in children's self-regulation is, is telling the sort of story that Bex is describing that, you know, I'm not okay, things aren't okay. But we also are finding, which I think is immensely positive, that because of the strong relationships that exist in schools, that children are finding that it's mental health now is something that they can talk about. Well-being is a is not a subject that's off limits. Perhaps in you know the way it might have felt years ago, this is a, an open door conversation. Um, one of our schools in in Harlow has employed a full-time therapist um, it, who is seeing children on a sort of open door basis and staff. That was what their head teacher believed was needed, so that's what he did. Um, we've, we're using. Uh, Programs such as Thrive, which you know, clearly is that restorative, therapeutic approach to behaviour. Um, and there is a real focus across the trust. We've, we've implemented mindfulness in many, many of the classrooms with uh, teachers who are trained as mindfulness practitioners. We held um, three times a week in the lockdowns, mindfulness sessions for staff. And I think it was 250 people came on the first Zoom call that I led. Um, in, in helping, and it was from right across the trust, support staff, teachers, leaders, who just knew that they needed something. And of course, the more that we say that that's okay to say I'm not okay, the more we keep using that language in our conversations as leaders of organisations, then the more that filters down so that that warm, you know, just the relationships that Bex was talking about, which is, you know, you can be fully yourself where you belong here, you're included, you turn up however you are and it's okay. That those, that's what we want. We want that culture in our schools that will help children to feel I've got people here when I walk through the door that can put me back on the right track and I can be open and honest about how I'm feeling. Interesting, we've just done our first ever children's survey and in spite of everything, 82% of children are saying that they're very happy at school. So, 
you know, we're working on the several thousand that said they weren't, but you know, that, that they are, I, I know we're never gonna forget working in our sector. Just children are so, so resilient. They've got this bounce back thing that is quite, you know, as adults, we can be quite envious of in many ways. And Definitely. Yeah. Um, Caroline, obviously there's a lot of products in this space, um, both Kathy and, and, and Rebecca have mentioned a couple. Obviously in the area of mental health, we need to be very careful about what companies are claiming when they go into schools. In your view, how should commercial companies be approaching, pr approaching this? Because obviously there's, a, there's solutions to be, to be offered, but how, how should they market themselves? It's a really good question. And actually, just before I answer that, just as I think the only non-teacher, non-academic in the room, just thank you. What you do kind of to actually help children as they've gone back into school is incredible. And I think, you know, as a parent, you often don't know how to help support children. So I think it's incredible that in schools, children do feel confident and able in the main to be able to talk about their feelings and, and you helping them to do that. So I think it's really important. But absolutely, um, I think we've seen over the last five or six years, a much larger focus um, from companies in the education space wanting to be able to prove the outcomes and evidence their products and services. And that's not just digital, it's across the piece. Um, but, you know, five or six years ago, they didn't really know how. So actually, <laughs> that's that's a generalisation. There were some that have done very, very sort of thorough work. But, but for lots of the smaller companies, and particularly in the digital world, the vast majority of companies are startups or are growing um, by the nature of it. We partnered with uh, an organisation uh, called Educate that originally founded from the University College of London, received some European Union um, development funding to actually help uh, education companies carry out proper evidence and impact analysis of their products and services. And since 2017, we've taken 300 companies through that process so that they know how to, as commercial organisations, carry out quality sort of academic level um, research and impact analysis on their products. So absolutely, as schools, I would say to schools, you ask the questions, ask to see the, the analysis, interrogate it. And I know that's hard when you've haven't got much time, but it's really important to make sure that it's it's um, it's got efficacy, uh, the efficacy of the products. We've actually, um, through BESA, we've launched something called LendEd because everybody's heard about the cupboard of shame where kind of a school bought something and actually it doesn't connect to the Wi-Fi, it doesn't work or it's just not suitable for the, uh, the, the children in the school. And that's the companies that put their products on that platform that, that schools can browse have to make available their product for free of charge to the schools to try so they can actually see if it works in their setting. They also have to have an evaluation uh, as well as putting links to kind of whatever research they've carried out on their products, teacher case studies. So real teachers because we know teachers trust teachers. So that's kind of a, a really, so that's for across more than just well-being. But in particular on the well-being issue, I think it's really interesting. Our, obviously, British education, um, I think we do ourselves down in the UK and we're sort of very focused on what we could do better, but it's worth remembering that the rest of the world still looks to the UK for the quality of the education we offer. And as a, as a part of that, as well as our schools and colleges, um, we see lots of countries around the world wanting to use British education products and services too. So we, you know, before COVID, would be taking our companies out to about a dozen countries a year. And in some very high performing um, 
jurisdictions with quite a lot of exam pressure. You, there has been a history of kind of poor and low student um, mental health and well-being, and our companies have got quite a lot of experience of working in those countries with school systems on trying to support children. So, you know, as we're seeing COVID-related pressures here, actually a number of those companies have already developed some products that. Um, they can adapt and use in the context here. So there are, and actually at the, the BET, which is the world's largest edtech event that happened last week, you did see a growing number of, of companies with um, wellbeing services, not just for children, I think it's also important to mention teachers. So kind of, you know, an awful lot of pressure on teachers, actually how to help um, teacher wellbeing and motivation as well. Because I think that's a massive challenge of supporting the staff in schools moving forward. So it is an area. You must be looking on to this, Becky, and think the EEF is the organisation that teachers look to for validation. Obviously, you can't validate every product in the market, just as you can't validate every intervention that goes on in schools that Rebecca or Kathy may have used for their, for their uh, literacy and numeracy catch-up. Where, where, where is your remit? start and finish in terms of validating and giving schools some uh, trust in what they're using and where does where do you want schools to take the initiative really yeah that's a brilliant question and i i wanted to come in on caroline's point actually because i think you're absolutely right caroline you know um the English education system is really innovative and, you, and, and it's right that we're looked to internationally for that innovation. But we know that within that innovation, there's good practice and bad practice and there's still a lot of snake oil out there. There's also a lot of snake oil companies and products that claim to be evidence-based. And I think that's an increasing trend that we're seeing, the claim to evidence wherever we look. So the question is, what is that evidence, as you're indicating, and what, how do teachers discern between this sort of very vibrant market? We've often been asked whether we would kite mark, but you're exactly right, John. You know, that's there's going to be an infinite challenge. Um, and also one of the careful messages that we um, curate at the EEF is that to quote Dylan William, most things can work somewhere. The challenge is whether they work everywhere. And a, and, and a part of that explanation is also about implementation and fidelity. So even where you have very strong evidence-led products uh, uh, and programs, that care uh, um, to resist complacency and think about how those things are interrogated and practiced, it remains important. I think that what we can do, and very much the EF's role here, is to distill active ingredients, um, which we're trying to do through our guidance reports, again, drawing on um, our resources like the famous teaching and learning toolkit um, and, and our other evidence reviews, to distill those ingredients that sit behind that, that teachers can then use our resources to say, well, does this product speak to the evidence? What am I looking for here? Um, and also to be encouraging that research literacy so that teachers are, are, are equipped to assess the warrants and the claims uh, that different products and offers are making. In, in the map sector, obviously the decisions you make scale very quickly. So when you're making uh, purchasing decisions, do you trial in a single school first? Or, you know, you've, you mentioned the Renaissance Learning um, 
assessments. Is that something that you've had a history with, so you, you scale it up very quickly for this purpose? Or does you, do you sometimes confident enough to go, no, this is something for us? It's a, it's a difficult balancing act, I imagine. Yeah, it is. And I think my natural instinct is, is to pilot something and to, and to sort of make the mistakes on a smaller scale first and before you, before you take something to scale. Some things like the, like the NGRT, the, the reading test, there's such a secure evidence base that actually that was quite a straightforward decision to say, no, we're going to scale this. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, I think that, that it's really, I mean, it's, it's amazing actually, the range of, of, of products that are now available. And there's a sense that there are some way you can say, absolutely, this feels like, for all of these reasons, a market leading product. Um, but it, it still might not, to the point around implementation, be the right solution in, in, in a very different context or setting. And I think it's you know, a school has to be ready to to run with something. And it's all too easy, and it's all too easy to sort of diagnose something at scale, um, and and then poorly implemented. It it has it has you no know, sometimes an actively unhelpful impact. So I'm really cautious about about what we implement at scale. But equally, given our sort of our sort of size and scale, there's a there's a lot that we can gain in terms of sort of intelligent procurement, which has real benefits for our schools. Um, mm -hmm. And and so it's very much very much a sort of mixed economy for us. Um, but but being bold enough to make decisions that is something once proven does work that we can we can scale it up quickly. Do you find the similar <coughs> in, in your trust and? If we add in pedagogical approaches to this mm. as well, because you know you could easily buy in a pedagogical approach as much mm. as a product that was an assessment based or you know a tracking data tool. Do you how much how much do you have to trust the head teacher? Do they come to you? How does that process yeah. work? We try and walk the line, just as Bex has described, between believing and we know it to be true that the head teachers are best placed to make decisions about what their school community needs. We serve children from incredibly different. Um, social backgrounds and very dispersed ge geographical backgrounds, you know, schools that have got 70 children in rural Suffolk to schools in London with 1,400 children on school sites, you know, so with 60 different languages spoken. It's very difficult and would be completely wrong to say there is a one-size-fits-all approach to, to, to schools that are so very diverse. That said, we know that one of the benefits of being in a strong trust is that you, you know, the, the financial resources are used wisely and they use efficiently and they use effectively so that it can, where money is saved through procurement, it's redeployed into where it's needed, which is at the classroom. So there are aspects where we have said, you know, we've got one assessment system. Um, it would be, you know, fairly meaningless. Uh, uh, approach to something as crucial as assessing children to not know when we're looking at trust-wide data if we're comparing like with like. Um, so there's been certain sort of quick wins and easy wins where heads and teachers have been very accepting of the need for a unified system. Um, so I think really on the whole we try and walk the line. We did uh, try and implement a pedagogical approach several years ago with a you know, find what works and scale it up and implement it. And it, it, we piloted it. It worked with a small number of schools. As soon as you try and do anything with schools that are at different stages of their journey, some that are outstanding and trying to maintain, 
some that have just come into the trust as you know schools that were previously inadequate I think you're into quite rocky territory because heads find themselves in kind of initiative overload what they need to do is gatekeep the the you know the school development journey and I think um, as a trust we've tried to be a, a kind of cornerstone that supports the buildings of the schools themselves but really letting the heads be the architects of that which I think is what drew me into the job and motivates our head teachers to be in the job. Obviously with all these products working in schools Caroline there's, there's these product owners have an incredible wealth of data and we've seen, we've seen Renaissance Learning share the data with the government and there's some really good stats on that. Do you think the sector, the commercial sector is open enough about with schools about the data they have and allowing schools to to use that data in an in a obviously sensitive and um, confidential way to inform what they're doing better? That's a really good question. I think I think individual companies need to work with the individual schools they work with because ultimately they're helping support the schools. So there are obviously the GDPR and um, the, the right safeguards in place for data security. But within a school, absolutely, the suppliers should be working with schools to make sure they do that. And I think the, the most effective suppliers do. Um, and yeah, you do see some, I think one of the really helpful things that, that suppliers can offer is because they are working very often with hundreds or thousands of schools actually building up that data and being able to report you know, things like what kids are reading with Renaissance and others. So I think it's um, an area where suppliers would want to work hand in hand with schools and you can see them doing that. But sometimes it's also the pressures on both sides of how much time and, and how bought in, uh, given all the other pressures schools can be at the moment and suppliers, but it's definitely an area that it should be focused on. And so, Becky, I'm going to come to you now and say, what are the dangers here? So I've asked Caroline, how much data can we have? Can we have it all? But I imagine you're going to say, well, hang on, what's the quality of the data? How are you, what's the tipping point where data becomes, you're led by the data while be, by, rather than being led by what you're seeing in front of you? I think um, Beck's made some very good points about the data earlier. Um, we need data, of course, that's your starting point and that helps your diagnosis. Um, but the teacher inflection and using your own data alongside, you know, national data and local data and so on uh, is definitely important. And I suppose that kind of resonates with a broader message from the EEF. We need evidence, of course, that's your starting point, robust research evidence. But we then need teachers to be able to use their professional lens reflecting their expertise about the local context and their kids' needs in order to inflect that evidence. I think that's probably where our kind of broad guidance, we've got our famous pupil premium guidance, for example, where we talk about a tiered approach, actually works probably beyond the pupil premium too. So the sort of messages there are start with your high quality teaching. We know that it's high quality teaching that actually makes the best progress for children and particularly disadvantaged kids, as was noted in the white paper, and we'll be talking about that in a minute, I'm sure. Um, 
So you start from that point, thinking about development then and support for your teachers, um, recruitment and retention and so forth, but also perpetual learning, how that's delivered with quality. Um, these are you know, they're always the most important starting point and area of direction. Then you've got, with your diagnosis from the data, your identification of particular areas of challenge, perhaps for particular pupil groups, and that's where evidence-led programs and products can be very, very helpful. And then you've got your whole school context and the you know, how to support kids' readiness for, learn and to, to, for learning in, in some of the ways, again, that we've been hearing, which also are very important and, and legitimate to, um, to, to expend resource. But thinking about it in that tiered way almost re returns people to kind of best principles and thinking about their professional lens and how to apply it, rather than being kind of dazzled or, or jostled by the availability of products in the space. It's, um, it's a good time then to move the discussion to funding. And I guess the difficulty for you, Caroline, is that because some of these products were free and then become paid for, and obviously education is a public good, how does the school justify the cost of, of paid for? And, and we should talk about this in the context of Oak National Academy being funded as a free resource and covering quite a lot of the basis of what we're talking about. How do, how do we uh, sort of talk about that? in a sensible, mature way. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think just to set the, the context for it, uh, we carry out surveys of annually of more than thousands of schools and it's a typical response of more than 1,200 schools. So we've been doing that every year for a long time. And really worryingly, despite the more money has gone into schools, but obviously there have been huge pressures on how schools use that funding. So when you look at um, the, the actual money that goes onto the resources in schools, ICT and non-ICT, at the very, very maximum, it's, it's maximum of 5% of a school budget. So in real terms, that's um, £55 per primary school pupil and £49 per secondary school on average. And we have seen, even with the injection during COVID, the, the expenditure on resources in schools has gone down, it's expected for this year to go down to 2015, 2016 levels. So to put that into context for a secondary school, that's about £62,000 per secondary school, going down to an estimate of £49,000. Now that's kind of a really worrying situation when we've all talked about the pressures that are on schools to help support pupils. They're obviously need teachers, you need kind of a, a safe and welcoming environment, but you also need some resources of some kind to be able to inspire and uh, the children there. So that's a big challenge. But then moving on to the discussion about um, the funding of resources, I, I've been really struck by this conversation alone about schools making choices for themselves. And the moment you try and centralise something or roll out something, it doesn't work. And for me, and for what teachers are telling us in our research, we carried out a research just last month of more than 600 schools, only 14% of schools are in favour of kind of a DfE or kind of um, centralised resources being made available to them. Uh, the vast majority, sort of more than 63%, don't want it at all. And, you know, they want to be able to choose their own resources. Now, it's how you deliver that, because in a state education system, I think that term free is a bit of a misnomer, because 
a school gets funding from government to do what they need to do with it or government provides a resource, it's all paid for somewhere, whether the government procures from a company to make available a resource that's then put on a platform or a school chooses the resources they want to use. And actually what schools are telling us and where we've seen success work is where schools have the freedom and choice to choose the resources they want to use. And actually I worry that um, moving to a centralised system isn't really about making available resources, it's about cutting costs by making available a smaller number of resources. Now that's what I really want to make clear is that's not to say what Oak and others during the pandemic, I talked about the £24 million that our companies made available, you know, that was a response that was absolutely right and really valuable. So I think those resources should remain available absolutely for schools to use as they want. But moving forwards, I think we need to listen to the challenges that we're all talking about. What do schools want and need? And when we ask them what are the biggest challenges, you know, getting free stuff, centralised sort of free curriculum resources from the central government does not come anywhere near sort of the top five, six, seven on the list. It's budgets in schools generally, it's teachers, CPD and training, and it's those infrastructure challenges. So I think helping schools, and the white paper does address some of those, but I think they're the key challenges and then putting the trust in teachers and giving them adequate funding to be able to choose what they use and where. On that point about budget being the biggest concern, what's the reality of the financing around schools at the moment? Well, I mean, the, the money is up uh, on paper, but the, there is still a, a real um, complex issues affecting schools. I mean, there's the rise in national insurance, pension costs. We're seeing about a 25% increase in building costs, any work done in, on, on school buildings. Um, but I think the, the extreme and ongoing demand that's being placed on budgets that's been so unpredictable is that of staff absence. Um, you know, we, there's a school that um, even this week uh, has got 25% of the staff off with either COVID or long COVID. And the impact of that, of course, is not just on supply costs, it's, you know, the, the, the leadership costs involved of perhaps non-teaching roles who've got specific areas of responsibility who are then involved in covering classes. And because we've never, nobody could have predicted the, the waves of the pandemic that have come and kept coming. I think just when schools think they can start to plan ahead and the budget situation will start to smooth again, it just hasn't. And, and they've been struck by another kind of huge bout of absence. So I think that is the main demand being placed in terms of budgets. The other is around special educational needs funding. And so, you know, the aspects that refer to that in both the white paper and of course the green paper are really welcomed because we know that those complex needs and high needs are only more prolific across the, you know, the, the sector now than ever. And schools will meet children's needs. They, they won't let them have needs that are unmet. But the sort of um, waiting game of EHCPs and the you know children waiting to be assessed is really putting a cost on both staff resource, the children's uh, provision, and the budget overall. And in terms of the salary makeup of the school, obviously you've got the thirty thousand starting salary come in. How do you uh, manage the, a situation that's becoming much more transient with staffing in terms of? We know that we're missing ITT targets, so we might skew slightly less on NQT or ECTs as they're called now. 
How do you assess that and what impact does staffing have on your budget, considering it's such a huge part of a budget? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's such a significant part. It's the most it's the most important factor if you're thinking about affordability. But I think it's also really helpful to think about it in the context of time, because I just don't think that we quantify time with, with the degree of precision that we should. So when we were talking earlier about whether or not we, we sort of buy products, let's talk about curriculum products. And when I first came to AT, I sort of diagnosed a really acute case of not invented here syndrome. <laughs> Um, and I continually come back and say, well, should we build it ourselves? Should we buy it or should we partner with somebody else? Um, and actually, how much time would it actually take to do something of high quality? And now let's quantify that in terms of all of the other demands. And so I think it is about, it is about salary costs, but it's also about being really quantifying time. And Cathy talked about leadership time when you're covering instability in terms generally of sort of staffing and absence. And, and so I think that plays into it. Um, my personal view is that I think that the uncertainty about the labour market is one of the biggest risks and biggest unknowns that we're all facing at the moment. Um, and I think that you know, that plays out across multiple sectors. Um, you know, the 30K starting salary, modelling that through, it impacts different schools really significantly differently. Um, and you, know, you put into that the, the, the continued existence of really quite stark regional differences and inequalities actually in terms of how schools are funded. Um, you, you talk about the, the sort of SEM funding, that looks so different in different parts of the country. You know, why should it be the case that where you live as a child is going to have a significant impact on the specialist provision that you can access? But it is the case and you know, I hope that much of that's addressed. Um, so I think that yes, you know, the 30k salary salary costs more generally but I think that there's a there's a bigger piece around quantifying time um, and thinking about not just what does the salary cost but what does recruitment cost in, in in a world where it's harder to recruit what's the impact of the increase in starting salaries on on salaries as teachers progress through their careers and is there going to be an impact on on retention or are we going to have to see us a different intervention in a few years time to address a problem that might not be a present now but could could well appear so I think it's really complex. In terms of an unfilled vacancy there's obviously a very obvious academic impact on that yeah. on the children is what's the funding impact of an unfilled vacancy? It's always more expensive to cover an unfilled vacancy um, and 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 it's more expensive in many ways. It's more expensive just in terms of pure financial terms, but in terms of the sort of qualitative impact that it has on a school, um, and the, just the wider, the levels of organisation really practically, just managing to figure out how to run a school day when you've got 14 members of staff who are off, that, that is, that's a really intense challenge which schools are facing day in, day out. Um, so you have to quantify it in lots of, in lots of different ways. You know, we talk a lot about recruiting ahead of time, actually carrying the cost, and this is a benefit of scale, carrying the cost of recruiting just ahead of time rather than waiting until you've got a gap that you know that you can afford. And I think that there's quite a rigidity to the way that we manage staffing in education because, because our budgets are so constrained. One of the benefits of scale is that we can be more, we can be much more um, flexible and, and dynamic in the way that we address some of those recruitment challenges. And I think we're going to have to be really imaginative going forward. And which brings us to more money would be helpful, but the white paper didn't have any more money really in it. But it did claim to be evidence-led, Becky, which, and, and the EEF was featured throughout the white paper saying that you are 
the evidence base for the white paper. Is it possible in, in reality to make the claim of being evidence-led because of the contextual factors you said before, because of the fact that evidence can't bring certainty? So how, how do you see that relationship between policy making, which we've seen in the white paper and the green paper, and this notion of evidential certainty? Well, it's, we, it, it's a big question there, John, but we can, of course, inform the evidence and we can do that in two ways. You know, we can support with the present evidence base and test policy theories and propositions to look at the evidence. Um, and also we can, taking something like obviously the early career framework, we can curate the evidence that goes in to support that framework. And the EEF is, is working in both those ways. I mean, there's been a lot said about the white paper um, I actually think that in the circumstances and given the sort of fiscal constraints and so forth, um, this is quite an educational white paper. It sets a, and, and charts a, a direction. And I was thinking coming up on the train that it's a little bit like a sort of point system, a set of rail junctions. It points us in the right path um, rather than allowing steerage off into, into wrong directions and keeps that path going forward clear. So I think one of the points of analysis about the white paper is that the devil's in the detail, and that's right on a whole range of fronts. But actually, some of the uh, criticism of the white paper, the points about, you know, is it ambitious enough and so forth, I think actually in the context, it is very ambitious. Probably the, 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 the system couldn't withstand something hugely radical that throws everything up in the air at present, let alone the question about whether this is desirable. Um, the, the four um, different chapters of the white paper, as they're characterized, think very sensible in terms of evidence, having uh, the importance of quality teaching at the top and infusing the first chapter is exactly right in the ways that I was just talking about. And I think that that's a very impressive and important direction. Um, and then there's a series of open doors to further clarification uh, in the system drawing on best practice wherever we find it, removing some of the sort of ideological barriers to that, and going harder and faster on poor quality and getting that accountability right. And all of these things, I think, are really important both for direction and for clarity. Kathy, did you expect this? <coughs> white paper did you were you expecting i mean i know some people were expecting either the great recovery white paper like this is a four-year recovery plan or the great re rewrite okay what's nadim zahawi's vision for education this is what we're going to see we didn't really get either of those things what was your overall impression overall i felt it was a really sensible direction of travel and i think becky's absolutely right there just isn't an appetite for some tidal wave of of new coming at the sector. I think there's the way that it's set out uh, in terms of building on things that are already in place. There, there is a continuity to it, which I think is welcome. So continuity around uh, it all starts with a great teacher in front of a classroom of children. There is no golden bullet, magic bullet to this. It, it's that great teacher in front of a class of children. That's how children make progress. 
If there was any other way of doing it, somebody would have thought of it. That's the one. And putting that front and centre, a focus on leadership. We really welcome the expansion of the national professional qualifications. The fact now literacy, early years are recognised and funded is really welcome. I mean, there were aspects of it, I think, that... Um, you know, we, we probably had a wry smile to ourselves and thought, thus was it ever. Parent pledges, yes, it's a, it's a good terminology, but, you know, I've not come across a school that doesn't talk to parents about children falling behind and doesn't talk to parents about what they're doing about it. That is, you know, that, that's what we do. Um, so there were some aspects that felt they, they didn't need underlining. Whereas there are other elements around, you know, what does a strong trust look like that I think are a real call to arms for the sector to become more unified. I think we're what I'm experiencing as a, a, a in, a, in a new CEO role is is colleagues and um, a context which is becoming more and more collaborative that says we're going to do better by children the more we work together, the more we break down boundaries and really knowing that what's front and centre in a strong trust is a focus on what goes on in the classroom. It is about enabling funding to be spent on the right things. It is about strong governance. It is around civic duty and all these things being aspects of the paper that, you know, when I read it, I felt, yes, the, the details got to come and we need to not overreact two aspects that aren't fleshed out yet. But on the whole, when I talked to all the head teachers yesterday, all 60 came on a, you know, a Zoom call with me. There was, a, I think, a general sort of nodding and agreement to many aspects of what we heard. How about, how about you, Rebecca? Do you feel that it was the white paper you wanted or needed? I think there's a lot in it that, that is quite refreshing. Um, and I think the constancy is quite refreshing. It takes quite a lot of confidence, I think, politically to say we've invested really significantly in these reforms around teacher training and development. Um, and actually, we're not going to move on to the next thing. We're going to embed it. Um, because you know, let's, take, let's take the sort of ECF and the ITT review. And you know, I've been involved in the, in the retention and recruitment strategy group for several years now. But we're trying to do something with ECF, which is at a scale and a pace that we've never, we've never embarked upon before. And I think the fact that we're saying, no, we need to commit to this and do it really well, I find really refreshing. Um, I think there is a lot in the details. You know, I've sort of spoken about that. And I think that how we, the route through these next few months to, to, to get more detail around what it is that constitutes a strong trust, what do the trust standards look like? Actually, what should intelligent regulation, what form should that take? But I think that there's a real openness through the white paper to work with the sector. And I think that one of the things that was powerful and you know, really important to me personally is this sense of purposeful collaboration, that sense of system generosity. And I think that it starts with assuming positive intent. And, and, and that's not ever saying, let's not critique, let's not put the alternative view forward. But actually it is saying, if we're gonna make a system which works well for every child, then we have to be the people who are prepared to step up and create that and build that. Um, and I think that it, there's enough in the white paper for us to be able to really, to really work with. And to the point on, is it ambitious enough? Uh, when we get there, when we actually get to the magic 90, um, then we can probably have a conversation about where next. 
but actually we're never going to get to the place where we where we reduce the variation that exists and the regional disparity that exists and the gap between children of disadvantage and and, and their more their more affluent peers unless we actually make a strong and confident step towards actually perhaps this should be the threshold that we calibrate around for an adequate education system in the world's sixth largest economy and let's get there first and then ask where do we go next that the, the critique around is it sufficiently broad i think is really important because i don't think it's saying just focus on literacy and numeracy um, I don't think it's putting forward a sort of grad grind model of education, but that's for us as school leaders to say, you know, school should reflect the colour and context of their communities. The experience that a child has outside of the classroom is just as impactful on, on the contribution that they'll go to make throughout their adult lives as what they experience in the classroom. But that, that actually fundamental literacy and numeracy, that, you know, that is the currency of choice and opportunity. And I think that we shouldn't shy away from saying there should be a high bar for all young people. Mm. And the other thing about the white paper that struck me is that a lot of this white paper is going to be procured, <laughs> like, and the SEND paper e even more so. So these, this is, these are ambitious in terms of the scale of the logistical side of it. Do you think the government procurement system can cope, Caroline? <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> I just I'd agree with everything everybody said actually about about the white paper. I think I, I like your term, Becca, about embedding, and I think actually it's a it's a very sensible ministerial team that doesn't go for the temptation of new all the time and actually works on on where we're coming from. So I think that's very positive. But from the the point of you know the procurement angle and the elements that would that that my members are experts on rather than the, the teachers in that you're all experts but it the directly uh impact on my membership i think it's probably two out of three so i don't know if that's a if that's that a b plus i don't know what's in old money when new money is a level five or six i think very right to to have sort of the the digital um standards as as that kind of basically a catch-all net for schools good to work towards the infrastructure until you get those right actually procuring anything is a bit pointless until you get the kind of the building blocks but the the procurement the it's not fit for purpose currently um i am very very worried i i think becky made the good point about the vast majority of the white paper being very well evidenced but the the section that talks about which will have the majority of procurements about curriculum resources is based on a 2018 report of 40 schools before the pandemic so going back to actually the purpose of why you would have centralized curriculum resources hasn't been evidence-based there hasn't been any market analysis of how it would impact schools or the commercial providers that provide those resources. And that is incredibly worrying. Um, last year, the department had to pull an in-class um, tender resource precisely for the point that it wasn't based in evidence on the last day of that tender because they hadn't looked at the market impact and the evidence. And I really worry that if we carry on moving forward with the plans for a new arm's length body at the moment, we could end up in national tutor programme territory in the future. And I do think it's really important that we work through schools and the sector and government to make sure that um, proposals are evidenced properly before we move to the actual point of procurement, before it's too late. It seems like a good point now, before we finish, to sort of, we've talked a lot about, a lot about the issues schools are facing. If I come to each of you and say, you know, in the next three months, which one is the most important for you? Um, which one is the issue that you think is, is, 
is the one that will be foremost in your mind or might keep you up at night, for example. Um, I'm going to go with you, Kathy, first. <laughs> it's got to be about retaining the great teachers and what goes on in the classroom. Um, we've been through a huge upheaval as a, in the, in, as a planet, as a country, as a sector, and the individual stories of, you know, the, 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 the loss and um, just the struggle that people have had, you know, through their lives. I think people are reappraising what they want from their lives. And what we, I think, as school leaders need to do is to re-inject that passion into people about what brought them into the profession. You know, I'm making a really deliberate point in my first three months in the job to reach out to every individual teacher, to start talking more into schools so that there is that, you know, hopefully a kind of golden thread of, of vision um, that's, you know, through the school leaders, but, you know, directly from me and from the, the board, which is about, you know, there is purpose to what we do. It matters. You know, you're you're the answer to these children um, and, and trying to keep um, that whole flow of great people coming in, great people staying. You know, I had a lovely conversation with a school leader just last week in, in Bexley Heath. She began when the school um, joined the trust as a newly qualified teacher and she's just become a head. It's those sorts of stories that we've just got to keep telling um, so that there's this sense of we're going to come out of this. There's going to be some big pivot points along the way, but, you know, we can do it. Caroline? I think it's from a professional, with my professional hat on, it's got to be about proper consultation and proper procurement and proper evidence analysis of the impact of curriculum reform and the arm's length body. Um, with a personal hat on, very much uh, agree with Cathy about maintaining and thinking about the well-being of teachers because they've come through such a challenging time. It's about how do we support them and all the good work they do. Becky. For me, it's the focus on that social disadvantage gap that's so well evidenced um, and we know has grown through the pandemic. Um, we've got the pupil premium, which is a wonderful mechanism uh, to approach that from a school's uh, uh, basis at least. And keeping that firmly uh, focused on socially disadvantaged kids, I think is really important. And Bex. I'm going to bring us back to children um, because I just think that we've got an incredible generation of young people in our schools who've been through something um, you know, that has the power to be incredibly disruptive for the rest of their lives. But I think that they, have, they equally have the power and the potential to turn it into a force for good. Um, and so for me, it's the focus on making sure that our young people feel a sense of real agency building on the work of that the, uh, our Children's Commissioner launched through the big conversation, that we are creating this new future together, making sure that we pragmatically do all that we can to close the gaps, particularly for those young people who've got less time remaining in school, but that we also hold on to a more energetic and colourful vision for what a brilliant education and experience at school looks like. Because, you know, life hasn't really been lived in Technicolor for the last few years. Um, and I think we've got a real opportunity to launch into the next decade with a, with a sort of different and bolder and brighter perspective. And, and we should listen to our young people in, in shaping that. I think that's a really positive point to finish on. Um, I'd like to thank the whole panel for, for joining in this discussion. And in May, we will have a similar discussion around SEND and the SEND Green Paper that we've mentioned today. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you.